0: This episode is brought to you by Indie Insights. Indie Insights is our bi-weekly newsletter and love note to the film industry, movies, and the creatives that make them, not to mention you, our esteemed listeners. Inside, you'll find curated industry trends, articles, exclusive commentary, and underappreciated films from filmmakers like you worldwide. And the best part is that it is completely Free, So join today at www.bonsai.film. It takes just a few seconds. And once you sign up, you'll get the very next newsletter on Friday morning. It's that simple. Go to www.bonsai.film to get Indie Insights, our bi-weekly newsletter, and join a network of film creatives just like yourself. And don't worry, we'll never sell your information or spam you with a bunch of nonsense emails, just the bi-weekly film industry goodness you need. And if you ever tire of Indie Insights, simply unsubscribe. No gimmicks, no games. So go to www.bonsaifilm to get Indie Insights for free.
1: Hi everyone, Um, I'm pleased to be here. My name is Denise Green, I'm the Director of Programs at Black Public Media, and I oversee the training, funding, and distribution initiatives for traditional media projects. You might know me as the series producer or BPM itself for our series Afropop, which is currently being distributed on public television or on pbs.org, and uh, AfroPop is a series that showcases films from around the world, highlighting the Black global experience. Um, and also, we currently have a rolling call that we just announced yesterday, a call for completed films, uh, and we have an open call coming up in the fall for production funding. Um, you know, as funders, we have a number of films that are in our pipeline with upcoming premieres on PBS. Uh, And these films are currently making their rounds in the festival circuit, uh, like Tribeca Film Festival coming up in June and Black Star in
0: August. Denise Green, welcome to the Make It Podcast.
1: Thank you so much, I'm excited.
0: I'm excited too. And I wanna give this audience a deeper sense, a richer sense of where you've been and who you are. So I'm gonna read from a bio. And as I always say, this is the internet. So if anything's incorrect or needs to be amended to, you just let me know. Denise A. Green is a Emmy and Peabody Award winner with producing and directing credits on a range of projects, such as a tribute video for the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences in honor of esteemed filmmaker Charles Burnett, New York Times Op Doc, When Music Turns Deadly. Free Angela and All Political Prisoners, and Pioneers of Thirteen. Also, the Blackside series, I'll Make Me a World, which I watched all of and I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed, and Blackside's Malcolm X, Make It Plain. Alongside her independent film projects, Denise joined Black Public Media as the director of the New Media Institute in extensive program training professional filmmakers in the latest digital technologies. Proceeding her documentary career, Denise started in children's programming, working in casting as a senior researcher for Sesame Street. Her most recent recognition in children's programming includes a Parents' Choice Award for her Nick Jr. Black History Month interstitial and we'll talk about what that means, I believe, down the line here. And Denise is thrilled to be at Black Public Media to direct funding and training initiatives such as 360 Incubator. Plus, Denise, how was that?
1: That was great. Thank you so much.
0: <laughs> um,
1: <I'm, laughs> I appreciate the, the quick journey. Uh, just reminded of how each and every one of those projects shaped me in one way or the other. Uh, so I appreciate
0: that. Yeah, it's it's kind of remarkable what a, a good summary of your career can do. It, can, it, it reminds you that you have had an impact on this world and on people uh, beyond your knowledge, more than you could ever know that you've impacted. So thank you for all this work that you've done because it has been meaningful work. Um, I normally would start this podcast from in this conversation from a position of like your origin story. Uh, but I, I want to start with, with black public media and, and uh, up front because it's so interesting um, and we will bounce around. That's what we do on the make it podcast. So we'll, we'll go on, on all sides of the planet here, but I want to talk about it because you guys do something really tremendous. I mean, you offer $225,000 of funding for award winning or, or the, for the winning uh, pitches and you are the director of program initiatives. So I want to just start with that. What does that role mean? And what are your responsibilities?
1: Sure. Um, so there's a, for as a director of programs, I concentrate on traditional media projects. So scripted and nonfiction, short and long form films. Mm. Um, and then we have another division within BPM called BPM plus that works with immersive media projects. So we're really, we've been branching out and, um, in a really good position to help filmmakers working on all types of platforms and, and types of storytelling. Um, and so in my, under director of programs under the d- traditional space, we are really looking to, um, support films with funding and really mindful of where the sticking points are for our filmmakers. Mm. So we do have uh, opportunities for our open call, which is production funding. That's larger amounts of money that will uh, make sure that films can move from one stage to the next. Um, And then we have uh, discretionary funding, which is really for our past grantees or projects that already have PBS commitment that can offer either seed funding or, um, or finishing funds, the two other really hard, um, you know, early money and the last bit of money are really hard to get. Um, so that's what our discretionary is for. And then, um, our incubator is for pro- for filmmakers who, um, have, have one or two films under their belt and really trying to get the next one off the ground. Cause there seems to be a, a lot of focus on the immersive or the emerging or the new filmmaker, but the, it's that second round, that sophomore, um, you know, project that you need support in. So that's where, um, the 360 incubator fits in. Um, so that's a combination of a professional development and a funding program in the sense that it runs into pitch black, which, um, We're really excited about the the fact that we are now holding pitch black on an annual basis. Uh, It'll either support our incubator fellows or it'll support some of our projects coming straight through open call.
0: Yeah. It's incredible what you guys are doing. And I appreciate that note about it's about that sophomore filmmaker. We Mm -hmm. preach that all the time. One of our missions is to make sure that first time director gets a second time to make a film. So often an independent, you go out, you have all the ambition in the world, a big dream. And sometimes it's not realistic. You go out there, you make mistakes. You're not able to make your money back for your investors. And that really culminates the end of your career. You start Mm -hmm. shooting music videos, or maybe you're doing commercials. You wanted to do more documentary. You wanted to do more feature, but Uh, you've, you've hit this point of loss of confidence in, in the process, loss of faith in yourself, loss, loss of faith from your investors. And so with this program, a lot of first time filmmakers that have a ton of promise would get a second, you know, opportunity to, to make a film. Uh, what are the, or what does, uh, the Netflix and paramount support of, of black public media entail?
1: So um, our we have a number of tremendous and uh, generous funders. Um, CPB is one of them, and so when it comes to our project awards, um, that's primarily from support of CPB. And um, when we have Netflix and uh, Paramount coming in, they're coming in to help our programming. So, um, like pulling off Pitch Black. Um, there's a there's you know some funding that needs to support those activities and that's what they're there for and it's because of that additional support that we're able to hold this annually so we're incredibly thankful um, that we can do that um, And also uh, our additional our new partnerships um, will help us, Um, focus be able to focus on certain areas like we'll be able to focus on shorts only or children's program only or maybe environment only so it gives us um, you know uh, several different avenues to to present to our filmmaking community um, you know that will could be the perfect fit for what their projects are
0: that's very good yeah a part of the BPM, and again, that's Black Public Media for the audience, part of the mission is to distribute stories about the global Black experience. And the goal is to inspire a more equitable and inclusive future. How have you found the Black experience to be in other parts of the globe? How, how are they like, you know, what's the worldwide view of the black experience uh, versus just the U S experience in your, in your view?
1: Well, there's many, many commonalities. And I think, that's what AfroPop does. Is sort of you know when we curate titles from mm-hmm. from filmmakers from around the world, it's it, we see connections um, that are similar to the stories here in the states. And I think oh. um, AfroPop is a place to celebrate the, the diaspora. Um, so you know the those films we we work hard to um, to you know actually. Afropop pop was designed to just show the diversity within the black experience, looking at the experience as a whole, across, uh, the countries, right. Across the world. Um, as opposed to, um, comparing, um, comparing stories, we're really looking for those connections. I don't know if that
0: makes sense. It, it, it does. And mm-hmm. it's, um, it's an interesting phenomenon, though, right? Like that, you know, we understand where some of the black experience, at least that's negative, comes from in the United States. Like, it's very obvious, right? Right. So, you know, we're working our way uh, through through slavery, and mm-hmm. you know, from that point, and um, one of our mentors, Dick Gregory, used to always say that it took the Jewish people nine thousand years to do that. So just give us some time and, and we'll, we'll be where we need to be. Um, sort of as a response of, of people being critical, uh, particularly sort of white people being critical of, of how, uh, little, you know, black people have accomplished as a community, which is yeah. a completely, um, unfair narrative. Um, but it, it is interesting that, you know, you go to other places, around the world and you can kind of find similarities in those disparities. Um, you know, I, I'm always surprised to hear even where slavery didn't exist, you still have a bit of a struggle. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If it's, if that's fair to say, is there a place in the, in the world where, uh, outside of Atlanta, that isn't a black utopia, or that is black utopia. (laughs)
1: Right. Right. Well, we haven't, you know, I guess, you know, in curating the work, um, it doesn't, you know, shine light on that. But in terms of, you know, the stories and making those parallels, Mm -hmm. this current season, we have a number of films. um, So Afropop actually is a platform for stories, in the States and outside, right. um, we do have a lot of stories from around the world. Um, and so people might not think of it as including us stories as well. Um, but, uh, so this current season, season 14, we have a film, um, about a black British, a soul band, um, <laughs> so we get to explore their struggles and, and see those commonalities with, um, you know, black musicians here, black musicians here mm-hmm. um, in the states, and then uh, Revolution from Afar is a film that has really taken off. Um, and looking at the Sudanese community here uh, in the states and their connection back home uh, to their relatives and to the, uh, looking at the revolution from from where they are here in the states. So it's those kind of connections. Um, as opposed to, uh, you know, real exploring it, different communities yeah. around uh, around the world, it's sort of like these spotlight stories about how we're living, um, you know that that more than likely we're hoping is shining a light on, you know, who we are as a global community um, and and the different things that we're facing and and sort of sort of drawing some cohesion with, with the kind of, um, you know, knowing of, uh, these similarities.
0: Yeah. And some of the achievements as well, which is always mm-hmm. great to show. Yeah. Uh, side note, I do tangents from time to time, but yeah. this is going to be one of them watching, um, your documentary series, I'll make me a world. You know, I was a kid when I watched The Color Purple. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. Mm -hmm. And so because I was a kid, I was not aware of all the pushback the movie got from Black men. Mm -hmm. And mostly in some of the Black community. And watching that introduced an idea to me that I lived through but don't remember. And it was a weird, surreal feeling. Like, how could anyone watch this movie and not just see absolute greatness. And, and, but I think whenever any of us are put on the spot, uh, even if it's true, you know, we don't see that in ourselves. And it it reminds me of a piece of advice I got a long time ago that I've held on to for a while now, which is if you ever want to know something about yourself, ask someone else. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they'll tell you exactly who you are and what you're lacking and what you're like and what you might do in a way that you won't understand. You don't know that you're that way. And if enough people tell you, tell you you're a certain way, that's probably how you are being perceived or how you actually are. Right. Um, so that was, that was great. And I, I thank is- you for being even a part of that and that, letting that exist in the world. Now you probably wouldn't describe yourself, Denise, as a gatekeeper. Right. And I don't think I would describe you that way either, but I know that for this audience, a lot of the folks listening, they want to know how to pitch. It's, we hear that all the time. I was just on a panel this weekend on how to raise funds and, and what makes for a great pitch. And you're an individual that listens to pitches and gives away money. So I thought for this audience, it'd be great just to hear from you, um, what were the winning elements for the pitch on, on Wednesdays in Mississippi, which is uh, Marlene McCurtis and, and Joy Silverman?
1: Yeah, uh, what a great project um, and a great pitch. I have to say that all five projects that pitched that day um, came with all the wonderful elements uh, of a pitch, starting with the passion um, and the story Um so, you know, I think um, when we're listening to pitches, we want to hear um, that the passion's going to take to the finish line. So, and that passion's going to drive the, the really intense storytelling and deep dive that it takes to, to, you know, build the story. But then all those other elements, thinking about, you know, that funding gap, um, putting some, some thought to what the engagement or their audience, uh, uh, strategy is going to be. So, um, you know, the bottom line, it's, it's about the story and then the the passion that, that fuels it. Um, but just to be, and I have to underscore the, the story part, because sometimes there's a lot of passion that packages a strong idea or, um, just, um, it almost comes off like advocacy, um, but just wanting to get a message. And so those are easy to tease out. And, um, you know, I encourage anybody that's pitching to, to you know, sit back and think, okay, I do want to talk about the environment, but what's my story? Um, that kind of thing. So that's,
0: that's, ex- that's perfect. And it's really great to hear it from you because it validates something that we've been saying for six years now which is that story is King. And mm-hmm. when we've invested in our films, we invested in the filmmakers. We, we call them filmmaker founders because yeah. we view them as founders of startups. Yeah. And sometimes you sit in a room with some of these guys and gals and you're like, Oh, they're going to do it no matter what. Right. They're so passionate. They're so they're on it. Uh, they're going to do it whether we get involved or not. And let's get on this moving train. Right. And to me, that's really what it comes down to. I mean, there are a lot of elements of pitch, and I, I do, you know, honestly find it easier, at least for me, to find reasons to disqualify you uh-huh. than to look for reasons to qualify you. Right, right. Like, oh, there, this is going to be a rights issue, or right. oh, I don't think they can execute, or or they're not as passionate, or their story is isn't there. For example, right, right. and so. Right. That's my approach, but I, I I love that we're similar in, in that approach yeah. of figuring out what a winning yeah. what a winning pitch is. Um, this is great because people listening to this should go out right away to the website and figure out how they can be a part of this. So that's what I'd like to ask you next is, um, you talked a little bit about the 360 incubator program already, but. Can you tell everybody how they can get involved, how filmmakers can get involved in this, where they should go step-by-step? Step? Sure.
1: So, um, our 360 incubator is coming up. That is one program that is every other year because it's pretty um, intensive. Um, it's.
0: It
1: will have an application uh, much like the open call. In fact, this year we're going to fold it into the open call. And yeah, as, um, looking for filmmakers with experience, we're looking for projects that are in well into pre-production or early in, in production. And it can be on any subject matter. It can be uh, short form, long form, and, um, it'll be a standard application. And for us, we do, uh, a two tier process where we lean on our community of, uh, filmmakers season makers, uh, programmers, um, funders to help review the films, the applications. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then from there we'll offer a spot in the incubator. We'll have, we're looking at five spots right now. And, um, you know, the it'll start, it'll kick off in January. The actual incubator will run from January to March. And at the end of April is pitch black. Wow. Um, yeah. So if you have a project idea that's in early production, um, the, the open call that's coming up, it'll be announced in August. Uh, applications will open in September. Uh, that's the opportunity for you. So the incubator, I should just say that, you know, uh, in considering it, it's a, it's a workshopping experience. We pair you with a mentor. um, And then, so you'll have access to someone in the field to ask, answer questions, and it could be on anything. Um, when we review projects for the incubator, we're looking for something that has really strong potential, but might need a little support, maybe in their funding strategy, or maybe even their treatment. Um, everybody that comes into the incubator has slightly different needs. and uh, But the beauty of it, everybody, since they've been around uh, the track before, they have some skills. And so we really, um, Try to develop the networking aspect of it, where the fellows in the incubator, along with the mentors, are sharing experiences. Um, you know, when you work on a film, each film, no matter how long, even if you're considered that seasoned filmmaker, each film is a learning experience. Um, and so, being able to share those tidbits um, are, are really crucial. Um, So it's always been uh, when the incubator started, it was an in-person experience. We went virtual this coming incubator. We're looking at a hybrid experience. So we will get everybody together for three days or so. um, And then we'll continue the conversation online and um, and
0: then have pitch black, which will be a hybrid experience as well. That's super, super exciting. Yeah, I consider folks like that success managers. Mm-hmm. So let me couple you with a success manager. They're going to make sure that you have a great time. You learn as much as you can learn. And then let's see where your stuff goes from yeah. there. Yeah. Um, was there a moment, Denise, growing up that you can remember in your childhood that you sort of realized or had the inkling, the idea that you would want to live a creative life?
1: <laughs> um n- Creative, You know, um, um, so it actually is late in my career because I always come to filmmaking on the educational side. Yeah. When I have been undergrad, I wanted to go to med school and I couldn't understand why they would, you know, um, only, uh, only funnel people out of the chemistry class. And I was like, this is not education. And then, um, understanding the value of PBS. Um, and then understanding also, I actually, um, I went to school with the advisor. One of the professors in my department was an advisor on the Cosby show. And that was sort of like a a aha moment. Like there's a lot of work, uh, really important work going into making these programs. Um, have impact. And so I always came to it through that educational piece. And um, so my first job was in the research department at Sesame street, trying to understand um, and work with the writers of Sesame street, giving them
0: information
1: and what's the best way to deliver it. Um, so that it will land with
0: children. And but that's like a big that. leap. That's a big change. What did your family think about you going from med school student to Life? Sesame street?
1: Right. Well, that was uh, the time where, um, follow your passion. Um, <laughs> I don't tell my kids that, um, <laughs> so, so they were all for it. Um, you know, um, yeah. So I didn't have any pushback.
0: Um, well, my daughter who's, uh, just graduated college, uh, went through the same thing that you described. She wants, she wanted to be a Pete's doctor and, she had to be funneled through this chemistry class and she had to get a certain grade in that chemistry class in order to graduate and then be accepted to the uh, next part of academia to, to be a doctor. But mm-hmm. along that journey, you know, what happens in college around your junior or senior year is you figure out who you are a little bit better. Mm-hmm. And then she's like, I kind of like pediatric psychiatry. I, mm-hmm. I kind of like the human side of this more, you know, I'm not into the diagnosis and, and, um, side of it, chemistry side of it. I kind of like the human side of it in in helping kids overcome, you know, childhood traumas and things like that. So yeah. there's a pivot happening there. And mm-hmm. I think, yeah, parents should be open to those pivots. Um, I had a lot of friends mm-hmm. that, um, especially my, my Indian and Asian friends where mm-hmm. those pivots are absolutely unacceptable. Uh-huh. And, um, it's, it, it really makes them miserable. Yeah. And, they, and they have to do little things under their, their parents' noses to satisfy that, that itch they have. Um, yeah. So you saw that and you just said, yep, we're making the switch. We're going to do it. I think I can do this. Okay. How did you have that confidence? Um,
1: I guess I, I just had the right folks around me each step of the way, you know, with the professor that I was mentioning um, who guided me into getting a degree in education. And then that was my, somehow Sesame Street fell in my lap. Actually, I went to school in Michigan and we got the Canadian version of Sesame Street. And I didn't realize that there were so many (laughs) different versions that they were, that Sesame Street was catering to. And so that even, um, that even excited me even more. Um, and then, so after falling into that, um, you know, and then I had a professor at, um, in my undergrad um, who actually, Robin Kelly, I, can't, I cannot go without mentioning because he's so impactful in my career. He was a, an advisor mm-hmm. um, at Blackside the production company in Boston, Makers of Eyes on the Prize, um, that introduced me to this documentary world. Um, And so with that, um, documentaries kind of took over, even though I kept trying to, you know, keep children's programming in my uh, wheelhouse as well. I mean, occasionally I did other children's projects, but it's just so hard um, to to be that nimble. But, yeah. We've
0: interviewed over 120 creators on this podcast. And there is a common thread as the data increases. The common thread is that successful filmmakers are really smart Mm -hmm. and they were great in school and you're no exception. You went to Michigan. It's a great school. You went to UCLA and NYU. Uh, There is a debate that's ongoing ever it'll never end about whether you should go to film school or not go to film school. But I am curious, those are pretty far apart. Which experience would you recommend the NYU experience or the UCLA experience?
1: Um, I don't think you need to go to film school, um, <laughs> Beautiful, <laughs> but, um, but it was still very helpful my experience at NYU and how I used it was I was already working in um at Sesame Street at the time and they went on hiatus and I had to do something with myself and while I felt like I could contribute and um felt very good in what I was doing in research and casting um at that point it's probably just research um no, it was casting as well, because when I got into NYU, then I can be really confident what a grip is and a gaffer is. And so all these yeah. terms um, yeah. really started to make sense. Um, but, you know, in the, in the indie space and in the doc space, you're right. People come from all different types of backgrounds uh, to inform the story. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh I, I don't feel like, um, you know, the, the the additional material is needed. Like, you can learn that on the set, you know. Yeah. Um, but going to school, I sort of got a concentrated introduction. Um, able to put my hands on film, you know, and actually do that for the first time, you know, cut for the first time and things like that. Um, but, yeah, so... <laughs> If I didn't make it to that program, I think I would still definitely be solidly in in documentaries and maybe even children's programming um, and not feel at a loss.
0: All right, folks, you heard it from Denise Green herself. <laughs> no film school. But you learned so
1: much, you know, <laughs> when you when you went through my um my top um and you said about the impact that I had, I was actually thinking about all the people that impacted me along the way. So yeah. each film experience, I was absorbing so much. Um, I have often said that Blackside was my school, was my university that I graduated yeah. from. Uh, I, yeah. Uh, how to tell a story, um, the create all the different creative approaches, um, yep. to filmmaking, I learned it there. Um, you know, and then just built on that and learned how to ask questions there because it was such a supportive environment that asking questions was, was really easy, uh, and quite fun. Cause you got so much, uh, each time.
0: This, is the decision I made I looked up the price of film school at the time it was, I think, Watkins, which is now owned by Belmont university. Uh And it was something on the order of 80 grand a year. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, it's a two year program. So we're talking 160 grand. Um, Would I be more prepared to be successful in this industry? 160 grand end with that degree, Mm -hmm. or if I took, 160 and put it directly into films mm-hmm. and showed up on set every day. And I, I like to say I made the right choice. Mm-hmm. So I put that money into filmmakers, into independent films and into these experiences and the rest is history. Here I am talking to Denise Green on a podcast. So there we go. Uh, <laughs> I am, you, you mentioned Sesame street, by the way, I have to know, did you get to cast any of the Muppets? Uh, I was, that?
1: I was all in the children's casting, hundred percent okay. children's broadcasting. Um, uh, I mean, children's, uh, casting and, um, but we got to be on the set with all,
0: all the Muppets. That's really cool. Cause the thing people might not realize about Sesame street is that it was really originally designed for inner city, uh, black kids, mm-hmm. um, as a, as a wonderful sort of counter stroke counter move. To some of the systematic shortcomings that were around education for mm-hmm. that community. Yeah. And so to work on Sesame street in the seventies and eighties is a really, really big deal. Mm-hmm. And I grew up on it. And, um, I think it's changed now a little bit. Um, I, you know, I haven't seen it in a while and I don't think it's as popular with kids as it used to be. Mm-hmm. I'm not a kid, so I don't know. Maybe some kid listening to this can tell me, Hey Chris, no, it's super popular. Um, and I'll gladly take that, but I'm not sure. Do you, do you know if anything changed internally there from a funding or casting or creative standpoint that, that has made it sort of less impactful on the, on those inner city kids? If that's true.
1: Yeah, I don't think it's less impactful. I think Sesame street is still very, um, leading the charge. Um, but there's other players out there and other, other, um, you know, there's other platforms that that kids are going to. And, um, but I I still think they're really critical, you know, Mm -hmm. as you mentioned at the beginning, it was really about those, um, that preschool uh, foundation that I was going for, especially in terms of literacy. Um, but even in its early years, it was branching out to other, um, other curriculum goals. Um, and I know by the time we got to, um, 9-11 well before then you know they dealt with death with Mr. Hooper and things like that so they would take on really big um uh, take on really big challenges to support um preschool age and um I know you know I was mentioning 9-11 because they were really critical in our Sesame Street was really critical in our household in terms of grounding Mm -hmm. um you know, children after that's, after that tragedy. And I'm sure I haven't been following it that closely, but I'm sure that's still a base for um, the different things that kids are handling now. Um, right. I would not be surprised if they're, you know, in fact, um, but I have been following a little bit because there is an alumni group. I know. With, yeah. Um, with all the events in the last couple of years, um, a racial reckoning that they're, they, their curriculum has been, you know, taking in um, the challenge by addressing issues of race and acceptance and, um, and things like that. Um, so yeah, they're, they're staying in the forefront. Um, they just have other people doing, doing it as well. I'll
0: check that out for sure. And speaking of alternative platforms for kids, uh, you are famously uh, not, very active or active at all on social media. Is that intentional or not?
1: Um, in a way it is intentional. Um, like, especially when it comes to business, like LinkedIn and things like that. Uh, mm-hmm. I didn't want people to pigeonhole me and like only, you know, I wanted to be able to speak for myself and what I wanted to do as, as opposed to someone deciding after, just reading my profile. (laughs) Um, and, (laughs) and then as far as like socially, like with Instagram and Facebook, it's a, it's a time suck that I, I, I have so many different things going on. However, um, I do regret it sometimes. I do wish that I would have like recently, um, I, I was honored by attending the, to attend the GLAAD Awards with mm-hmm. Mama Gloria for one of our Afropop films, and I was like, I should be you know posting this and you know sending pushing up all kinds of yeah. pictures, but I didn't. Uh, and so, I, yeah, it's moments like that where I was just like, yeah, I need to up my profile a bit.
0: When you were at the GLAAD Awards, did you meet Alex Schmitter? I didn't. Uh, we had, we had him on, uh, the podcast and he, uh, um, definitely, I don't know what number episode that is, but we'll put that uh, maybe in the show notes. I'll have at least do that, but definitely go back and check out that episode. I think you'll love it. And same with everyone listening, uh, really truly impactful, especially if you're confused about what the actual, not the media version, but the actual standpoint is of, of, of a trans Person is. Um, yeah. It's really uh, Im- impactful. How can a documentary address the rise of or the seemingly increasing rise of of white supremacy in a new way that brings society together instead of fostering more division?
1: Mm-hmm. Um. That is. Uh, a good question. Can you answer ask that again?
0: Yeah. Cause I, 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 what I see out there a lot is, uh, in addressing, uh, of this w- sort of white supremacy movement, uh, increasing or, or becoming more prevalent, but, uh, I feel like it's often presented in a way that creates even more division. W- what would be your way, or is there a way to do a documentary where society can unify on a subject? Like this.
1: Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. Well, um, it, that's a, that's a difficult question, but a great question. Um, it's, and I, I will answer it. But, but first, I'll say that in terms of Black public media, we're interested in the filmmakers taking um, whatever voice. that they want whatever they want to amplify and whatever perspective that they want to offer, Mm -hmm. um, is what we want to support. Um, so they might not even hit that goal to unify, right. Mm -hmm. It could all land in healing and understanding and, uh, internal conversation, which is completely fine. Um, you know, a uh, number of our films address race in one way or the other um, and being a black, being a um, black in America. Um, so. So that that is there. Um, and as far as, you know, offering a conversation um about healing, I think, you know, or a conversation about um, bringing people together for Mm -hmm. this conversation. Um, It could be something I would, I would want, I don't know what that film looks like, but I think it's a call for um, possibly addressing you know certain issues like whether specific to gun control or specific to, um, mm, yeah, just I mean, you know, racial hatred, um, you know, those specific calls, and just to see how the filmmaking community would answer
0: that. Um, yeah, and, and maybe it's even a documentary series would be. More Mm -hmm. effective than a a single film Mm -hmm. would would be coming, you know, to to be able to approach that balanced view that brought people together versus what I see out there is this is all your fault ism. Right. Accept it, you know, kind of thing.
1: Right. And I also feel like a lot of that, the onus goes on the white community, right? And I feel like, um, that they need to ask the question and then they need to solve, you know, have those conversations solve the problem in figuring out what that conversation is. Oh, that's
0: really interesting. Yeah. Like, like maybe that film should be by a white director, white filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mm-hmm. can see that. Or maybe like a, a you know, a, a crew that comes from it, from that perspective, regardless of their background or, or whatever they identify. So yeah, that's, that's a really interesting I mm-hmm. did too.
1: Mm-hmm. And there's just not, not enough of that. I know Whitney Dow is, um, he's a white filmmaker that has entered that space time after time. Um, and his work is is fantastic, phenomenal, and, and great for offering those conversations. Um, but there needs to be more, um, you know, filmmakers and other white you know, community leaders that need to, um, to strike up that conversation.
0: Yeah. With that Um, question, um, I'd, I'd love to turn this conversation towards tools and tactics of the craft for this audience. And you've been quoted as saying that, uh, one of the sort of early mistakes that indie filmmaker makes is, is not getting, an accountant or an investment advisor. So why should we get an accountant and an investment advisor at the pre-production stage? Yeah, um,
1: at the, yeah.
0: um, Or at any stage, I don't want to pigeonhole you.
1: Right, right. It's at your early career stage. When you've decided that you're going to be a filmmaker, independent filmmaker, you really need to, know what that means in terms of business. Um, what do you, do you need to set up a small company? So ask your accountant ask your uh, investment advisor, um, you know, just have those conversations early on so you can set up, um, you know, a cushion for yourself so you can Mm. move from project to project. Um, and then, and then I, I bet you in turn that will help negotiation skills when it comes to working <laughs> on projects and making sure that you're paid so that you can cover your health insurance and your retirement uh, and um, and think you know think ahead uh, yeah. and just keep that cushion going. So yeah, I'm glad I said that. I'll, and I'll <laughs> say it again.
0: <laughs> I find it to be very true. Um, in your opinion in your experience what is the state of funding and financing right now
1: um I think it's uh, you know it's it's healthy um, I see a number of opportunities for funding out there um, and looking at what we're doing uh, we're we're growing we're allowed to give big we're at the stage of giving bigger amounts. So I think we're in a really good space. Um, I know that various platforms are looking for more Black content, and we just have to be vigilant in making sure that, it, that their definition of Black content includes all Black voices. Um, and so the more that we can conf- um, fund and support our filmmakers that are working in different spaces, whether it's their creative approach or their stories that they choose to tell, um, I think, uh, we can keep this momentum going and it, it's, it's no secret that, um, if it wasn't for the protests, um, and the, you know, around George Floyd, and um, beyond that opened up those avenues, um, but, uh, they're not going to remain open unless we continue to keep
0: being vocal about it. They're making great content as well. Yeah. Uh, what about for non-black creators and filmmakers? What do you think the the funding is, world is for them right now? And and are there avenues that you know about that have been sort of lucrative and, and open uh, mm-hmm. to pitches?
1: Yeah, um, I actually don't know. Um, I'm so focused on. <laughs> um, yeah, to <laughs> tell you the truth. Um, yeah, I'm sorry.
0: That's, that's okay. That's totally all right. Um, you know, there is, um, it reminds me of that that old joke where uh, you know, a white person will say, why do you get a Black History Month? Where's our White History Month? And you say, well, all the other months are White History Month. And okay. so I guess in this case, the idea is, is that if you are a, sort of an underserved community for funding, these things are are necessary to get that voice and to even the playing field, if you will. And then for everyone else, um, those traditional avenues are open to you depending on if your story is great or not. And we spend, uh, the line share, frankly, of this podcast, not this particular conversation, but our podcast over the years, uh, focusing on those other places where you can get that funding anyway. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think, I think those avenues are open and, and understood. Um, yeah. I uh, would love to take you through uh, a quick sort of speed round of questions, but, I, but that doesn't mean you have to answer them quickly. I just, you know, um, <laughs> they're sort of coupled together. I'm curious, what is the biggest challenge you've overcome as a filmmaker and how did you overcome it?
1: Um, the biggest challenge I guess would be um you know we kind of touched on this before but so promotion um mm-hmm. and how did i overcome it i called it out right in its face um i just thinking early on um uh, working in blackside i was just noticing you know people moving up um yeah and um And it was all about, it wasn't so much that they were moving up, but they're just really vocal about all the great stuff that they're doing. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, um, yeah, so I was just like, you know, I should speak up a little bit more. Um, And I just, so I just, I just called it out on his face. I spoke with um, the producer that I was working under and I was just like, is this what it takes to to make it in this business. And he was kind of like, yeah. Um, (laughs) (laughs) so, so I, am still learning that obviously like, um, but, uh, it is one of the, one of my hurdles that I continually have to work on, which is self-promotion.
0: Yeah. I took a disc profile. I don't know if you know what that is, Mm -hmm. but it's one of these personality tests and disc is an acronym. It's D I -S S C. And, you know, C is like your high compliance. Right. Mm-hmm. And I is, is like where you're a, a giant self promoter. And I'm like, I was considered in high, a high I. And I was uh-huh. like, okay, I'm in the right field. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I, I know how to naturally just talk about myself. <laughs> <laughs> It's just, I'm just uh-huh. going to put it out there. So, you know, it, I think anyone that wants to kind of know more about themselves, I think it's the most comprehensive personality test you can take is the disc profile. It's okay. better. It's better than Myers-Briggs to me. And it's yeah. better than en- Enneagram uh, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. I've taken all those as well. So I'm speaking from experience. The DIS profile is great because it teaches you who you are in uh casual settings and who you are in professional settings. And the feedback I got from my disc profile was that the danger with me is that I'm the same person in both places. Mm-hmm. And there should actually be an adjustment of professionalism or an adjustment of behavior when you're in a professional space. Yeah, And yeah. so I bring the regular Chris to the personal, to the professional space. And it's a, it could be a problem. So I learned all the things and, and practiced and learned all the different ways to sort of curb uh, that potential lack of professionalism that I could bring to a professional situation. Not perfect uh-huh. at it, but uh-huh. th- this profile revealed what those things are and how I could practice getting better at them. So.
1: Wow. Yeah. And so they gave you steps on how to get better. And it's a a giant
0: booklet, Denise. Yeah. It's like 60 pages. Is this
1: with a C or with a K?
0: C. C. Okay. C. Yep. D I S C. Yep. Uh, so there, uh, if anyone from disc is listening, I'll uh, take that commission now. Uh, uh, we mentioned Robin Kelly earlier. Uh, what are the two best pieces of advice you've received in your career and who did they come from?
1: um so um, two best pieces of advice well that those early on pieces are I think are really critical and foundational, um, even though they might seem small. And one is from Gabrielle Howard at Sesame Street. she worked on casting um, and she said, Get there a half hour earlier before call time, Mm -hmm. and um, so yeah, that's that basic uh urging to be more than on time, be ready, but also just to like, um, you know, be ready emotionally and everything else before be well rested and nimble because the kids are gonna come in. Um <laughs> and this is yeah. gonna be needed in that. Blah, blah, blah. Um but if you had that space for prior, um uh, yeah, it serves you well. And I I take that, I I've taken that and run with it. So yeah. Um yeah. Um and do I let's see if I have another one. Um uh Gosh. Um, I don't know. I have to say, you know, Leslie Fields Cruz, who is mm-hmm. the executive director now at BPM. Um, I've been working at BPM on and off, uh, you know, when it was earlier called the NBPC national black, black programming consortia. Yeah. And, um, so, it wasn't so much like actual spoken advice, but um, and along the lines of this self promotion thing, um, she would constantly just push me into <laughs> into um, areas where I have had to, uh, you know, promote BPM, promote myself, promote you know whatever. So. Um, in, so in that, the advice is just jump, just jump in the water. Put um, yourself
0: on death ground. Yes, exactly. As Sun Tzu would say, yeah. uh, I I think that's really great advice. Actually, yeah. um, you you will be surprised what you can accomplish when you send your ships away. Yeah. And the only way forward and to survive is through the yeah. obstacle that's in that's in front of you. So that's truly believe in that. Yeah. Uh, which creatives do you most admire and want to emulate, Denise? And and what do they do from a technical or skill standpoint that makes their work stand apart? Mm. Um, that's a fun question. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Yeah.
1: Um there's so many actually. Um, you know, I can introduce to really great talent. Um Over and over again, and so um, I love uh, Madeline Hunt Ehrlich. Um, Mm -hmm. I love her approach to storytelling. Um, I love her approach to Black history, and and using the gaps in what we know about our history as not as a deficit, Mm -hmm. Um, but. As a, as not only a creative approach, but also an, a a way to um, celebrate our history too. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and and with that, my eyes are really open to um, experimental documentary, nonfiction storytelling, mm-hmm. um, especially from Black creatives, because I just feel like there's a language. Uh, um, that's being built or has already been built. I know that A.J. Fielder, he's also another big fan of mine. Um, He's been working in that space and talking about um, our creative approach in that way for a number of years. And so, um, you know, I really like those conversations and I really like to see films and how that's played out in in their work. Um, Yeah, so um big fan of rada blank too um Mm -hmm. what she yeah what she did at the met gala i think um is is what i'm talking about in terms of storytelling and she did it in a different platform from her um 40 year old version um but still like you know creating storytelling and narratives in a unique way that uh really taps deep into the emotion um and so yeah so the I I would I would spotlight those uh filmmakers and and lastly I'm going to say um Amir Lewis who I call a a story whisperer he's an (laughs) editor (laughs) and he um he is uh, my husband, so I get to hear stories taking shape and how he's, you know, seeing the elements and uh, and hearing how he is crafting a really dramatic story out of, you know, these elements. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it's you know, husband wife aside, I just really admire. Um, how he could tell a story, um, and really pick out where the dramatic moments are. And then if, if they're not there, he, he can tweak them in such a way that really grabs your attention, um, and giving you that narrative thrust that you're, that you're looking for and keeps you on the edge of your seat.
0: And I think (laughs) that it's incredibly sweet. And you've, you've now, become the envy of every creator listening to this, that wants a partner that supports them in that way. (laughs) Uh, It's about 50, 50, you know, You you get, sometimes you get a partner who just kind of is like passive aggressively holding you back and smiling and saying they support you. And then they, then you have people like yourself where you're like, that's my biggest, you know, one of my biggest inspirations is my husband. Who's a creator. I think that's beautiful. Yeah, it's very, very good. Uh, if you had one month to teach someone how to be a producer, Mm -hmm. what would be the first three things you teach them? So this is a person who has somehow gotten a producing gig, uh, whether by hook or crook, and Mm -hmm. they are completely out of their element. They've come to you. They're desperate. Denise, I have to look confident. What are the first three things you teach them in, in the first 30 days?
1: right and this is documentary right sure okay <laughs> um so i guess the first thing is to um you know get your story down um and uh just write it down this is a project that came to them is, is what yep.
0: yep they've been okay. added as a producer
1: uh, um, but not a director,
0: a producer, not a director. director. Okay. Well, well, if you want to take it that place, you can as well.
1: Okay. Um, so the scenario is the person gets added as onto a project as a producer and it's their first time,
0: first time, and I, they, have, okay. yeah, they, they don't know anything about producing.
1: Okay. Okay. Um, so I would, as a producer, tell this first-time producer to um, first find other films that are similar in the subject matter um, and just get well-versed in what's out there already uh, on that film and what's not out there. Um, And as they're reviewing these films for story, they're also looking at credits for funders for other supporters of the film. Mm. Um, and they're also looking for uh, potential crew. So, um, and that first, what you want to land first is that writer, mm-hmm. um, that director to help you. And that researcher, um, if you know this is a documentary piece, mm-hmm. um, that's going to help you tell the story. So watch a lot of, watch a lot of films Get some information on potential funders that can be traditional film funders or funders that are foundations, for instance, that are in a space that, you know, are aligned with what your your story is about. Um, And then get the writer and the researcher and the director on board to put that story down. And then uh, over the course of time, that story is going to build out with more research and more questions around the story just to make it stronger.
0: That's uh, beautiful. That's beautiful. And I love this idea of looking at the credits. I think I'm crazy when I do that. And mm-hmm. I now I feel validated. I always look at the credits to see who the EP was uh, and to look at the the crew and uh, the writers. It's so um, I'm always deeply interested in in how the thing maturated from the beginning, how it was nurtured. So that's yeah. so, so fantastic. You've been quoted as saying that for every hour of a documentary you mm. should dedicate one year my question to you as someone who's very very interested in efficiency and um uh, achieving something that that is uh, above you know sort of the median uh how do we cut that in half as a documentarian like how how would you cut the time in half so instead of I have a two-hour documentary 92 years. How can I do a two-hour documentary in one year?
1: You have to hire. Um, you have to have money to hire. People. <laughs> yeah. You split the task, delegate, um, and everybody's coming to the table, um, you know, helping to craft the story. And you can do it quicker if you are if you have multiple researchers. Um mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Money. Are there if if you didn't, and this could be uh, overly challenging, but if you didn't have access to that additional fund or, or funds or financing, are there any tactics that you know of, or tools that you know of that could maybe take the work of one researcher and, and double it up, for example? Mm-hmm. Are there any websites, yeah. any software, any tools that you've used that kind of? double the work of an of an of one person mm-hmm. or, or typically of one person. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I haven't been deep in the space that way uh in a while, but just knowing that now everything's online um yeah. I'm sure I'm speaking on my experience where when you did research you actually did it, it was a travel trip. <laughs> so, um now that everything's quicker, um you know, uh that will probably cut things down. I don't know of any particular like online tools to help with that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, what I really appreciated early on was having feedback. And so maybe that is something that can accelerate the process. Like if you don't have additional money still, um, you know, reach out to that season producer or, you know, another producer director type and just give feedback, um, So that you can, you know, shape of the film quicker.
0: uh, So in post, yeah, make the post edit faster.
1: Yeah, yeah, we can make
0: the yeah,
1: or you, yeah. I was thinking even earlier on, just continuing to get people's feedback on how Mm. the film is taking shape, um, so that you're not in there, you know, month after month, uh, sort of working solo uh, or just your small team. Yeah. Got
0: it. Yeah. They say you can't throw money at an election and win, but -hmm. you can throw money at a documentary and win. Denise, this has been an amazing time. <laughs> but you have to
1: have the story. You have to have the <laughs> but your story. But
0: story is still king. That's right. <laughs> you, you've, you've been an amazing guest. This has been so much fun. I, I love having a conversation where I get to learn something new, and, and that's certainly been accomplished here. Can you can you tell everybody where they can find you uh, on the Internet, where they can see some of your work? Uh-huh. Um...
1: So you can definitely go to blackpublicmedia.org and sign up for our newsletter. And then you'll learn about what's coming up and what films are going to premiere soon. Um, And then you'll also uh, get to our social media platforms. So I'll sign up for our newsletter, go to our website. Um, And then for me, I'm at realgreen on Instagram. Um, But as we already talked about, I'm hardly ever there, uh, but you can visit. (laughs) And that's green with the E on the end. Uh, That's R-E-E-L-G-R-E-E-N-E. And I think that's it. Yeah. Um, We have a YouTube page. Black Public Media has a YouTube page where you can see Afropop. um, And then some of our other programs, our pitch sessions, you can see online too. So I think the the place to go to is our website.
0: That's awesome. And then I know that you can watch some of the films you've worked on in the past at your Vimeo pages as well. And so if you type in Denise green into Vimeo, uh, you will get some of her stuff. You can watch it there as well. and support. And I think you should absolutely do that. Um, Let's end on this just so people know because these episodes are published sort of well after the conversation happens. Uh, We are recording this the day after a a horrible, horrible uh, tragedy in Texas uh, shooting of now 16 dead uh, elementary students. And this comes just a few weeks after a horrific grocery store shooting in Buffalo, New York. Is there a message of hope? or of caution you can offer this audience? Mm.
1: Oh, wow. Yeah. It's, um, it's hard to stay steady, uh, with the recent events. And, um, I guess the message of hope, um, you know, is that is of community Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, that's what we try to build all the time with storytelling, but, um, you know, it's not like, uh, I think everything comes in community strength, um, a place to rest and regroup and, um, and a place to build and, and think about and strategize. So all that is, um, is important. And, and the more we hear each other um, through and stories can help that. Stories can just offer a, a natural place of understanding each other um i think we'll be in a much better space so so yeah um that's where i think that the hope lies
0: i love that and it's a wonderful place to end denise you are the best and for those listening in the audience please go out find her support her work on the various platforms blackpublicmedia.org and on Vimeo and youtube as she mentioned uh and if you want to get in touch with me Uh, We are at contact at bonsai.film and you can find us anywhere podcasts are listened to. Denise, I'll talk to you soon.
1: Yes. Thank you so much. I had such
0: a fun time. I really appreciate this conversation. Likewise, likewise. And I know we'll be in touch soon. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Hey gang, one more thing before you go. I want to talk to you about Indie Insights. Indie Insights is our bi-weekly newsletter and love note to the film industry, movies, and the creatives that make them, not to mention you, our esteemed listeners. Inside, you'll find curated industry trends, articles, exclusive commentary, and underappreciated films from filmmakers like you worldwide. And the best part is that it's completely free. So, Join today at www.banzai.film. It just takes a few seconds, and once you sign up, you'll get the very next newsletter. It's that simple. Go to www.banzai.film to get Indie Insights, our bi-weekly newsletter, and join a network of film creatives like yourself and don't worry we'll never sell your information or spam you with a bunch of nonsense emails just the bi-weekly film industry goodness you need and if you ever tire of indie insights we hope not but if you do simply unsubscribe no gimmicks no games so one more time go to www.banzai.film to get indie insights for free and thank you for listening